Today we'll continue our summer study in First and Second Samuel of the life of King David, and, and actually more accurately, King David's life with God. Uh, I want to invite Stephanie Homer to come up and read our text for us from First Samuel 16, 14 through 23. Now the Lord's spirit had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's servant said to him, Look, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. If our master just says the word, your servants will search for someone who knows how to play the lyre. The musician can play whenever the evil spirit from God is affecting you, and then you'll feel better. Saul said to his servants, Find me a good musician and bring him to me. One of the servants responded, I know that one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a good musician. He's a strong man and heroic, a warrior who speaks well and is good looking too. The Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son David, the one who keeps the sheep. Jesse then took a donkey and loaded it with a homer of bread, a jar of wine, and a young goat. And he sent it along with his son David to Saul. That is how David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked David very much, and David became his armor bearer. Saul sent a message to Jesse. Please allow David to remain in my service, because I am pleased with him. Whenever the evil spirit from God affected Saul, David would take the lyre and play it. Then Saul would relax and feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him alone. Word of the Lord. Thanks, Stephanie. Last week, we jumped headlong into the story of King David's life with God, and we encountered, among others, King Saul, Israel's first king. And it was kind of strange in that story, if, if you remember, that kingship seemed a little doomed from the start. It's a scary thing for us to read a story and, in many cases, realize he's, he's all, he was almost elected not to succeed. Mysteriously, in God's divine providence, God regretted making Saul king. This last week, I, I went on a hike up to Hillsboro, and I talked about this with Josh. If you didn't know, we're basically on the base of a mountain here, the Okanichi Mountain that rises almost 900 feet. It's the tallest point of Orange County. I know you all are impressed that your pastor is a mountain climber now. Uh, I, I hang out with these, with these pastors each week, and we read together, and we pray, and we're in between books, so we decided to, to go on this hike, and my pastor friend, Rich, led the way with a trail map in hand, explaining that he's not the best trailblazer. <laughs> he's never felt particularly adept at trekking into uncharted territory, or even charted territory. He went on to share how this deficiency drastically hurt him in his, his high school cross-country career. You see, one time Rich was actually winning, but at some point he had to run while he was backpedaling, asking, which way do I go next? Needless to say, Rich was pleased to finish second on that race with the leader in front of him. He was hampered not by his physical conditioning or acumen, but by his directional inaccuracy. His indirection seemed to doom him for second place. And I think maybe that might be King Saul's story. He's got all the horsepower. 
but lack of the sort of God awareness that he needed to give fullness and life to his work as God's king, as God's surrogate king for his people, to give clarity and direction for his everyday realities. Saul was a, a backpedaling sort of king from the start. If he's going to do God's work, he needed to do it God's way, step for step, with the only one fit for that sort of job. Today's story in 1 Samuel features a leadership transition for God's people. Saul is out and David is in. I love how understated this is in the text. I mean, nowadays when a ruler is deposed, even in our elections, there's, there is a major election or there's an Arab Spring or there's this crazy social media explosion or violent coups or protests that break out. Here, the Lord's Spirit simply and subtly flies the coop departs from Saul. But there seems to be like a, a spirit vacuum here. Up until now, Saul wasn't necessarily a bad guy, but he just wasn't a particularly spiritually attuned type of guy. I wonder if God was, in removing his spirit, was trying to get his attention swapping out his spirit of power and love and soundness of mind for a troubling, fearful spirit to see if Saul would even notice. I wonder if we'd even notice sometime. But I think we felt this kind of spirit, this unsettling, troubling, haunting spirit. It's that pop, stick straight up in your bed because something somewhere just isn't right kind of feeling. That feeling that there is just an an absence that hadn't previously existed. Whether that absence is that cold spot in the bed next to you where your spouse got up hours ago and you didn't even feel it, or, or that absence where somewhere, someone you loved, you love just isn't right. Someone's sick, someone died. We've all had that feeling. A lot of translations say that God sent an evil spirit to Saul. What are we supposed to do with that? To me, in, in following some scholars, I think the Hebrew rendering actually seems more accurate to say that, that that spirit was troubling, that it was scary to Saul, that it was dark. After all, removing the light of God's very presence only leaves room for darkness. And if we're honest, we're all a little scared of the dark. We're all afraid of being alone. This darkness, this absence, this removal of God's spirit, I think, gets traced back to Saul's liturgical problems. He's got a liturgical problem. And I think we have that same problem, figuring out how our work and how our worship fit together for a whole life an integrated life. We normally err one side or the other. We, we like to think that we can live some sort of God-contained world over here or on Sundays and in some normal world of family and friends and work and society over here. 
It's easy for us to forget that not only is all of this God the Father's, but also we, we tend to forget just how enchanted, just how spirit-active each corner of this world is. It's easiest for, uh, to forget that liturgy, when you think of liturgy, what, what, what do you think of? It's, it's a church word, right? Like it's a religious activity. It's easy for us to forget that liturgy is as much a work word as it is a worship word. Worship and work. Work and worship. Part of this problem is that we think of liturgy as the work of the people and, and we think that it's something that we design, we generate, we execute for God. This only gets it half right, maybe less than half right. Our work in a liturgical way of life has to flow from the God who does work. The God who generously creates and, and generously draws others, draws us into that creative process. We also, I think, misunderstand the of part of the work of the people. For it's not primarily the work that we do, but it's the work that's been done for us. We're the recipients of this work. Like when Durham's Department of Public Works paves a road or digs for fiber or builds a new park, the residents of, of Durham get to enjoy and use and steward those works. I think this has the potential to really change the seemingly unimportant things, the things that we don't think are important enough to be worshipful, into into a vocation, into a, a calling from God to see our work inside of his work for the sake of the world. Uh, one writer, Catherine Leary Alsdorf, writes about this, that a job, jobs that each of us have, is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own self-interest. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. I know some of you are showing up here today a little crushed by that. But it's this reimagining that I want to think about. This is what Saul didn't get quite right. His worship of God became a mechanical afterthought. It was detached from his new job as a shepherd of God's people. He didn't seem to have that imagination for how to approach his work as worship, and worship is part and parcel of his work. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, many of you guys have tried to do this, and it, sometimes it feels like, like prayer and worship isn't really expected out of us. It's not really in our job descriptions. Our bosses and our colleagues just want to know our bottom line, what we can do for them. And worshiping God can seem like a royal waste of time. But what if instead of tacking on worship, what if our work became part of our worship? What if our jobs, and I look around our jobs as students, 
and parents and a lawyer and a manager and an employee, a real estate agent, a server, a volunteer coordinator, a teacher, an artist, fill in the blank. What if those jobs are, be, have the potential to become vocations, callings, specific contexts for worshiping God and drawing others into that worship? What would that look like? What would that feel like? How can we imagine that? I love this story um, from Eugene Peterson about this very thing. He writes it in his memoir, The Pastor. And he writes about growing up as a butcher's son in a small town in Montana. Uh, that sounds like kind of an awesome job. Um, and he, he writes in this memoir, he, he, he writes, I always thought of my father as a priest. Just a butcher, an average butcher. Not even like a cool local craft butcher, right? Like just a neighborhood butcher, right? And, and of course this father, him thinking of his father as a preach, uh, priest, he's alluding to that Old Testament variety priest. A large portion of that priest's job lied in meticulously cutting up the sacrifices to offer on behalf of God's people as amends to their sin to restore communion with their God. He goes on to talk about how his mom always made a matching white apron for him growing up. So even when he was four years old, he had a uniform that looked just like his dad's. And he was learning that priestly family trade of contributing to the blessing of his, cu of his customers, of, the, of their neighbors who might share fellowship over the fruits of his father's labor. Uh, I, I, I read that story originally around the time when I was serving as associate pastor for the Gathering Church, and that church meets in an elementary school gym uh, on the other side of Durham, and, and I, I was, I was, it, it was particularly, I think, in the middle of a really hot summer, and, and most of my, uh, a, a lot of my Sunday responsibilities were centered around, like, set up and tear down, and so uh, I tried to come up with this imaginative idea that before my hands would ever touch a Bible on any given Sunday morning, they would touch a hammer, they would, they would make coffee, and, and they would unfold chairs. And I couldn't quite come up with my like, liturgical analogy there. Um, but there was something earthly, earthy, something bold about that calling, something real and tangible. Do you see how charged something as normal as being a butcher can be, though? for those of us with eyes to see. I mentioned in this week's email uh, about this article in, in the Indie Week paper um, that they ran this week about the fallout of past um, real estate redlining activities in Durham and, and how you can, you can tell about that when you just look around and see that poor neighborhoods don't have that many old growth trees around. And as I read it, it stuck out to me that, that trees in the Bible have always been both an indicator for and, and an indication of prosperity, of flourishing. Places with large old trees means that there has been a water source and there is shade. Someone lives there. Ab Abram provided 
hospitality at the Oaks of Mamre, where he and Sarah were blessed as parents of God's family. Scripture's whole story runs from a tree in the garden through the tree of Calvary towards the tree whose leaves are for the healings of nations and revelation in that garden city. Do you see now how realizing this sort of work of God and imaginatively joining into it makes something um, like, for instance, what Aaron is doing with Keep Durham Beautiful can, can make that into a significant theological, liturgical calling, not just, not just a job, but a calling, something with cosmic significance soaked with potential, potential to actively witness to and worship the Creator and Redeemer, to join in that renewal and to work for, for justice, for shalom in our city. Around here at Oak Church, uh, if you've been around here for any uh, length of time, you've, you've probably heard that we believe that unless, uh, with Scripture, that unless you change and become like the little children, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Not my words, you know. Um, it's that impetus um, that, that gives us an expectation that anyone that's been around here for, for more than six months or even less, really anyone who considers Oak Church their church home, will volunteer with Oak Kids. And it's not because the Oak Kids ministry needs you, it's because you need it or you need, more specifically, you need them. And serving them, knowing them, and in some way becoming like them in your life with God is vital to your growth as a Christian, to your entrance and your experience in God's kingdom now and, and to come. And if that's true, how then does it change life for those in us, in this, in this congregation, in this community whose vocation are full-time moms and dads? Some of us are nannies or au pairs. Some of us are teachers or tutors or camp counselors or YMCA workers. Consider that for a second. That you not only get to be a priest for them, a, a rabbi to them, but you might have an inside track on the kingdom through them. That on any given day at 11 a.m. in Durham, our city parks and playgrounds, our pools and the Museum of Life and Science, in a couple weeks, VBS, even our neighborhood elementary schools might be the greatest signs, instruments, and foretaste of the kingdom of God. That challenges the heck out of me as a dad. <laughs> that the couple afternoons a week that that is my full job for the moment, it makes me want to like completely turn off my phone and like lock it away because why would I spend a second looking at a screen when I could be taking notes on the kingdom? When I could be cultivating a kingdom in these kids or, or when I could be connecting and investing in the people that I could run across, other parents, other families that I meet. I want you guys to go home this week and, and pray and think and imagine and write down some of the ways you might conceive of the work that you're doing in light of God's redemptive work in Christ, his activity in the Spirit, his calling, in light of the ways that Scripture talks. Pay attention to, 
to what starts to hum in your heart, what inspires, what enchants you, how to imagine this work as a vocation. And so it's this very kind of liturgical, this kind of vocational imagination that I think Saul lacked. But beyond that, I think Saul also lacks a a royal imagination. In short, given who he had been, given the things that had been cultivated in his life, I just don't think he knew how to be king, how to be a Saul type of king, but more importantly, how to be a God type of king. As Saul is troubled, he asks for relief. They say, send one of the best, send me a great musician. That's, I like to imagine that's what we do with like, you know, Casey and, and uh, uh, Lee and, and others. And we just say, send, send me a good musician, right? One of, one of Saul's courtiers knows just the ticket here. He says, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a good musician. He's a strong man and heroic. He's a warrior who speaks well. And he's good looking too. The Lord is with him. There's a touch of irony here. First, that Saul's assistant actually has the eyes to see the the insight and the vision for exactly who David is and what gifts he possesses. But also that Saul is going to invite David, the one who's called to dethrone him, right into his courts. He's going to open the door for him. He, He doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. He's not aware. He asks for the one whose job is to keep sheep, to ease his troubled mind. I wonder how David saw himself, how he had been prepared for this or had been preparing for this. I remember as a kid, I, this never really came to fruition, but I remember as a kid in the driveway counting down the shot clock, imagining the game-winning buzzer beaters that I'd hit for my championship team. I don't know what that's preparing me for. I'm still waiting. Um, But I wonder if all those hours upon hours that David spent strumming and humming songs to himself in Bethlehem's hillsides, I wonder if David might have imagined a royal performance, like he he had lined up all these hosts of sheep and he's like, you know, that is the, the king and, and, you know, et cetera. That he was playing these God songs, this soul music to them, soothing them. The way he'd one day soothe the king of Israel. I doubt he'd ever imagined the skills and the habits being cultivated as a blue-collar worker. Worshipping and working. Working and worshipping. That his shepherding, his literal shepherding, might equip him to become Israel's royal shepherd. That all this menial work that he was doing was actually kingdom work. There's no way that David could have ever imagined that his life and his story with God would preview and fit into the story of Jesus, the true king. Jesus, the the strong and heroic one. I don't know how good-looking Jesus was. But Jesus was the one who would wage war on sin and death for us. 
Jesus was that good shepherd whose sheep know his voice. The son of God and son of man who spent most of his earthly life cultivating a liturgical imagination as a carpenter that fed into a a royal imagination as the sort of king that would become enthroned on a rugged cross. In Jesus, we come to see this work, worship, life lived to perfection. What Saul couldn't do, what David came a little closer towards. If David's life could be described as the Lord is with him, which is what someone in Saul's court said, how much more so Christ Jesus' life? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a life lived in answer to a calling, a life animated by God's Spirit, a life of peace and comfort to these afflicted ones, even those afflicted by their own sin, their own blindness, their own stilted imaginations for who God is and how God works. Jesus' life offered to us if we just join in the completed work of God on our behalf, join in on the work that he's doing by his spirit in this world, we ask him to give us eyes, give us ears, give us imaginations that are poised and ready, that are available and yielded for both work and, and worship, for worship and work in the very place that God puts us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for for exactly where you've put each and every one of us. Father, we thank you even for those tasks, those jobs that we hate. Lord, if you can renew this world, if you can renew our hearts, you can renew those jobs and make them the foremost places, the the sites of worship in our lives. The places where we follow you into this world. We follow you into this place you've already been. The place you've sent your spirit way ahead of us. Father, transform us by the renewing of our minds that we uh, might imagine ourselves in this God story. Ourselves participating, cooperating with you. Father, take away the fear or um, the sinful ways that we approach our work. Take away the the pride or the laziness or uh, anything that might inhibit us witnessing to your good work in this world. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.